Hey folks, and tonight's episode is brought to you by YesPleaseVintage.com. If you're in the States and a fan of vintage and upcycled housewares and clothing, give YesPleaseVintage.com a check for clothing, jewelry, homeware, and some really awesome finds. So go check them out now at YesPleaseVintage.com. And currently, if you spend over $60, you get free shipping on all orders. Hello and welcome to the Asian Cinema Film Club. I'm your host as always, Edward Jones, and joining me of course is my co-host, the Professor, Mr. Stephen Palmer. Hello everybody. This is episode 92, and tonight we're going to be looking at uh, Hong Kong's entry into the kaiju genre. Kaiju Christmas comes early to the podcast this year, as we have a special bonus kaiju feature for you as we look at Mighty Peking Man, which is a film that... For many, many years, I've been trying to push on the vote, and for many, many years, it's been ignored on the vote as we've all decided to look at other things, and some real dedicated people have really been determined to try and get us to talk about Godzilla versus Megalon, hmm. which I'm sure will be a very dark day when we get round to doing that indeed. <laughs> but uh, Stephen decided to be very nice and uh, pick out Mighty Peking Man. I did. Utam, King of the Orangutans, as it's also known. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and we'll also be talking about that. We'll also be looking at the exploitation genre a bit as well. Uh, before we get all into all of that, it's time to ask what you've been watching. And since the last episode, Stephen, what has been holding your attention, if anything? Well, I've got to be honest, it's been a bit of a busy week, so I haven't done a lot of extra watching. But I did manage, so, so you know, obviously recently I've been, um, well, obviously for this episode, I've been looking at the old uh, Shorescope box set and I looked at the Gamera box set last yeah. time. And one of the box sets I hadn't um, I hadn't really been exploring uh, from Arrow was the old um, Female Prisoner Corp- Scorpion, Scorpion? Scorpion box set. So I finally got round to watching the third film in the series, Beast Stable. Okay, how did you find it? I, I, didn't think, I don't think I'd seen it before. Um, yeah. So obviously we've covered the first film in the series. Um I can't remember. Is that just Female Prisoner Scorpion, isn't it? Yeah, it's Female Prisoner Scorpion 701. That's right. Or, no, it doesn't It's Female Prisoner 701 Scorpion. This yeah. is as bad as when we did the episode and we couldn't get the title. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then, the, so, you know, and the, and the, anyway, the, the first two are very much she's in prison and shit goes down and then she escapes. <laughs> that, that's, that, that's it. This one, oh, it's fucking brilliant. <laughs> I wasn't exp- I was expecting it to be awful. And obviously, of the, of the four films, this is the third in the trilogy because they've got the same director as the first two. And I think the fourth film is is very much considered a bit of a an, a, not yeah. an outlier. I don't think it's terrible, but Seven Hundred One's Grudge Song is that's it? right. Yeah, it's just it's just got a completely different feel to it. And obviously, then you have the there's there's plenty of other sort of reboots of it later on. Anyway, um, from the opening moments where. Sari is um, accosted by Detective Gondor on the train, and she chops his fucking arm off, and then and then carries it with her because she's handcuffed to it. And then we have sto- yeah, we have stories of one-armed detective chasing her down. She gets involved with a couple of, well, she gets involved with a, a prostitute who's having 
I'm not sure it's con well she's having consensual sex with her mentally ill brother to stop him having sex with other women and then she gets pregnant by it and then another prostitute gets pregnant and we have two terrible abortions and the whole thing is framed um have you seen um this is going to be a bit of a, <laughs> a bit of a tangent but the, the the second jurassic world movie once they um once they get off the island it's dinosaurs in a mansion but the oh, fallen kingdom yeah yeah but the director clearly is really being influenced by horror movies and things like that and and there's a really interesting film inside fallen kingdom that isn't quite executed but that's what I feel. This 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 is this isn't like a women in prison film. Although there are women, and some of them do end up in prison. It's like a it's like some kind of modern take on a Japanese horror story. And it also reminded me of. Do you remember like the early Resident Evil games and Silent Hill games that I don't know if Silent Hill was actually fair, but and Dino Crisis, where where. You'd get every, every room you went into, you'd suddenly appear at a, it would be a different angle. Okay. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And then, then you'd have to tank control your way through. Every every shot seems to be taken from a ceiling fan or down low somewhere else. It just, <laughs> it just reminded me of playing the very first Resident Evil game <laughs> back on the PlayStation back in the day. Um, and Sari herself, she's very different. This, you know, she's like this uh, sort of this angel of vengeance. Um, in this in this urban setting, and yes, they do go back to the prison in the end, and and then there's that, that really campy woman who's in charge of who, who's basically running the prostitution ring for the yakuza, who's got literally a murder of crows in her house, and oh, it's bloody amazing! I loved it. I loved it. Loved it. Loved it. Um, and it wasn't the film I was expecting, but it should have been because you know we know that the other. The other films in the series are full of surrealism and and sort of a bit of yeah you know, quite quite advanced filmmaking and experimental filmmaking and this one yeah this this one just felt like yeah it's female prisoner scorpion the horror film and um, well it's not scary but it's horrible and horrible things happen to poor people and if you wanted a film to talk about the horrors of backstreet abortions double double team this with Alfie. And you know it's 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 quite you know all, all the female prison scorpion films exist in this weird world where they're clearly exploitative of women, but also quite powerful feminist statements. So yeah, really interesting. I loved it. What do you think of it? I assume you've seen it. Uh, no, I've not seen this, oh, okay. seen this one. I've got the box set like yourself, but mm. I've not. I'm still working my way through it. But it's uh, obviously Miko Kaja, who. We are, of course, big fans of here on the show. Um, obviously, being the icon of Pinky Violent Cinema that she is, and it doesn't surprise me. Obviously, the description you gave me of it—it it feels very much in the similar, similar themes of of these uh, these movies. And I'm I'm gonna go back. I'm gonna go and finish off watching that that box set. It's all on the Arrow Player as well, so I've got no real excuse that you know can't be bothered to dig out DVDs because I can just put them on the Arrow Player. So I think that will probably be what I will be looking at next week. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go and uh, see if we can cross those off, and maybe watch some of the more of the Stray Cat Rock films as well. 
So I think I've still got a couple of those outlying as well. I, I've only watched one. Yeah, I've got the box set of that, and I've only watched one of them. So and I think that that was that's what I reached for, and then I picked it up, and I said, you know what, I fancy. And it was only eighty-seven minutes. I needed something to watch, so we had something to talk about, and I bloody loved it. And now I regret not bringing it to the show. You know, as, as a proper, as a proper. I guess we can one day, but yeah, really cool. So that was it from me, really. What about yourself? Uh, for myself, well, first of all, I tried to been doing a bit of uh, research into the Shaw Brothers back catalogue ahead of tonight's episode because obviously Buddy Picking Man is one of those oddities in their filmography, and I thought, well, maybe I can find a list or something to sort of highlight some of the other ones because I obviously know about the Oily Maniac, which is directed by the same director as uh, tonight's film, who also did uh, Flying Guillotine as well. Which are both um, odd movies there, but sadly no one has put together a list of the bizarre movies in um, the Short Bob's Back catalogue. Although there is some real oddities in there, if I'm to believe Wikipedia, like Cleopatra in the City of Gold is apparently a Short Brothers movie. And that's a black exploitation movie. So I mean, Really? <laughs> they did um they did do I, I learnt they did co productions of a couple of a oh, Blade Runner. The Shaw brothers were partly involved in the making of Blade Runner, apparently. Um, yeah, and I know Golden Harvest were um, supplied the actors for the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movies. Mm. Um, and I know that as well that um, the Shaw, was it Shaw brothers? They did. Um, there's another one that that they were involved in. Oh yeah, uh, Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, which was a co-production between them and Hammer. Uh, which is uh, basically Peter Cushing in in China. Yes, um, yes, that film, film I've still failed to watch, even though you've intrigued me about it about four times now. <laughs> um, but um, the film I did stumble across was Seven Man Army from 1976, directed by Chang Che. Uh, this is him attempting to give his take on a World War Two movie, as it sees uh, six soldiers holding a fort against the incoming Japanese army, who are about twenty thousand strong and have got fifty tanks. Um, according to the blurb, anyway. And, yeah, this is a real, you know, no guts, no glory style war movie where you just see countless Japanese soldiers being blown up or machine gunned down um, rather than, like, the horrors of war story that uh, became more popular around the sort of time of, like, Platoon and Full Metal Jacket and sort of carries across now into more modern films such as like Sim and Private Ryan. We don't really have the where Eagles Dare, Guns of Daffron, that sort of uh, gung-ho boys own adventure style of war movies anymore, really, do we? So, but, no, this is interesting, really, as I said, because it's a Chang Chain movie, so we come to expect more sort of traditional martial arts fare, and he does actually manage to work this in, as we obviously have the the main uh, film which features a lot of sort of like bayonet work so you get uh, some kung fu action in there with trench warfare there's apparently one of the guys has a big Chinese broadsword because apparently there's a broadsword unit and I'm not really up to speed on my uh, history especially China's contributions to World War 2 but I'm not sure there's a broadsword unit in World War 2 so bizarrely <laughs> <laughs> I've seen this and I've written a review of it Have on you? Eastern Kicks yeah <laughs> and um, back in 20 well 13th of December 2015 3 out of 5 
Um, but and this was back when I think I did a whole bunch of Short Brothers because a whole bunch of their films got released onto iTunes. Yeah, it's through uh, Celestial. Yeah, um, did this did so, this one, so, so you can so, get it on iTunes. So. Yeah, so there's, there's a whole bunch of even though I'm not hugely deep in Shaw Brothers there is a whole bunch of reviews for me in around this time where we kept getting iTunes <laughs> codes to download it and they're all you know they're all, they're all stuck on my phone somewhere um yeah so it is based on a true story but I don't think the true story involved them all being martial artists I think no and <laughs> when you look at they always all of them have these like backstories which show how they get going to the army mm. only like the lieutenant is the only one who has like a flashback to military training camp mm. which shows like where he got his whole like grit from everyone else it feels like you're watching a kung fu movie that's been edited in yeah. they're always like getting into brawls with the Chinese or the Mongolians or there's one character who's a drunk who's um, who got involved again with with some mobsters it's, there's all these like uh, the backstories generally involve around them falling out in some way with a group of the local Chinese but they always look like they're traditionally shot kung fu movies that these uh, little backstories play and obviously this is Chang Chi's sort of bread and butter so these scenes are all a lot of fun uh, it's always fun as well to see like the Chinese broadsword which is uh, normally that one that looks like a simicler it's got the rings down one side mm -hmm. uh, compared to like the western broadsword which is like you know King Arthur style it looks like a claymore but uh, bigger and wider uh, so it's always exciting when you see a Chinese broadsword in action and we get to see that put to great effect here but yeah it's um, I enjoyed it I think I enjoyed it more than yourself as I gave it four out of five stars um I think I enjoyed, I think I found it a bit over long um, but as all you know as you might guess I did kind of enjoy going back and finding out what really happened so I think I think what happened was that yeah, they, the, it, these seven men really did hold out against the Japanese, well, the Mongolian and Japanese army for five days. But I think they, it, it's a bit, um, if you like Zulu, it's kind of like that idea. You know, the small band of men holding out against a massed army that eventually is to naught. But um, I think they, they did. They did do tricks and things to make the Japanese think there was more than seven people holding this fort. But... Yeah, I, I, it, 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 you know, we don't see a lot of war films. I know we've covered one on the show, haven't we? We covered um, the horror film. Oh, our uh, point. Our point. And there, there are there are a few. The, the the problem I think that we have is that for me that war movies tend to get a bit jingoistic. I've got I've got a couple to watch that we'll I'll eventually talk about, but yeah, they, they always they're always very. Um, Political and jingoistic, I find. Whereas I'm interested in the stories of, 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 you know, sacrifice and stuff like that, but not really when they say we're doing all this for China, we're doing all this for Britain. It just that just bores the shit out of me. But um, <laughs> <laughs> you no, know, mate, three out of five on Eastern Kicks for me. That's like a gold star. So I did, I, I believe I did enjoy. I just thought, I just think I thought it was just a little bit too long. But that's probably because I had to watch it on my phone or something. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I also watched Love and Other Cults, which is from 2017. Um, I feel kind of bad because this is like the second 
week in a row I've reviewed something by Fred Winter Films and the second week I'm going to bash it. So, <laughs> um, But this is the second collaboration between Ichi, um, Ichi Uchida and uh, the head of Fred Winter Films, Adam Terrell, who's uh, served as the producer. And he also produced his previous film, Low Life Love. Um, but Love and Other Cults uh, sees him bringing across former child actors uh, Sarito Ito and Kenta Suga. Um, giving them a chance really to play a bit of a darker characters rather than you know the good kids that they we sort of can become accustomed to play but the film itself um, sees them playing uh, she plays this girl named A who is kind of orphaned by um, her mother her mother's like this religious nut who's like when we originally meet her she's on her seventh religion and she ships her daughter off to go and stay with her cult for seven years and when she comes back her mother's sort of obsessed with a new religion and basically throws her out and she falls in with um, this bunch of delinquents and along the way she keeps reuniting with her high school friend Ryota and the film basically follows them over follows them over a number of years as they drift apart and they come back together and all the while that he's uh, be- become kind of like a teenage gangster and she's like constantly been trying to find a, a family trying to find a sense of uh, love like she falls and she gets her adopted by this family and then she, at the same time she's moonlighting as a hostess and the father of this uh, family comes and visit, visits her and it leads to this real complicated situation and she uh, ends up on her ass again but um no, I mean, this is a, a film which ends up with far too many sort of subplots as we end up t- trying to, like, develop all the other characters in Ryota's gang and a lot of them aren't particularly interesting and only A and Ryota are sort of like the only really sort of interesting ones in this uh, this story. So the end result of the film is a bit frustrating, the message that it's kind of trying to tell, and the ending itself feels more like a stop-off in these characters' lives than an actual ending. But um, Sarita, Sarita Ito is fantastic in this film, and her, she's when she's playing this character of A, who's got this, like, persona who's like constantly shifting she's the same as like her appearance it's constantly changing every time we catch up with her and i think she was like one of the more interesting aspects of this film and it was just really annoying that it was padded out with all these characters that i just didn't care about yeah i um i haven't seen this although i think i've got it on dvd somewhere because I probably because it's third window films and there was a time they were one of the only Asian things you could pick up in in the local shop um and it sounds like I mean I didn't know Adam was um producer of it but it sounds like a third windows film release that kind of modern quirky movie we watched um Turtles are surprisingly fast swimmers which yeah. is another film which just sounds that's the third window films release. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it feels like, you know, this was like a Sion Sono movie. Mm. It's trying to go for that sort of quirkiness, but at the same time, it's just not and giving cover, us that quirkiness. Now I think about the cover looks extraordinarily... Well, it's it's a third window films cover. You, know, you remember I was having a bit of a poke about um, Summertime Machine Blues' cover. Yeah. It, it looks like that. It looks... And... Um, 
there's a there's a Sion Sino movie they did, which has got and just yeah, I just I just think they all look the same or they sort of, they've all I mean I don't mind having a you know people having a style, you know that that binds all their stuff together, but yeah, I do think some of the third window stuff it's it's like lots lot there's heads or or people and faces all superimposed on each other, isn't there in a in a kind of scrapbooky kind of way. I, I yeah, I do remember this, but I haven't I haven't seen it and you haven't um inspired me <laughs> to go no, and watch it. It's uh and I feel Phil Pags was supposed to obviously be trying to promote labels <laughs> in the UK, but um and yeah, I've got nothing as I said, I've got nothing against the label and they have got some very good releases. It's just this didn't do anything for myself. And I think as I said, it's like when you watch something like uh, Larry Clark's Kids, when you're like in college you think it's the greatest thing ever and then you watch it as an adult and it's like, yeah, maybe not so much. There's a time and a place for everything and I think I missed that window for this film where perhaps I would have appreciated like the scrappy teen uh, gangster or something. Mm. But It also sounds to me from how you've described it with sort of the, that religious aspect, it sounds like... Um... Uh, love the Sion Sono film that went on for four hours. Um, oh, uh, Love Exposure. Yeah, it, sound, it sounds like Love Exposure light to me. <laughs> yeah, Love Exposure, as I said, they. Oh, I, Love Exposure is a film that is very long, so I don't have it on regular rotation, but there are parts of that film that I really do like. We do get to see um, a really great uh, role by Dendon. Who's the one to see on Sonos regulars? And uh, here he turns up as uh, Kida, who's like a, a Yakuza boss that's kind of like mentoring uh, Ryota's and his gang. And um, it shows he's introduced there collecting his benefits because he's really old. So he's like, oh, I get my housing benefit, <laughs> my food benefit, and all the rest of this. It's all like, my, my advice to you get old quick. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, there are moments in it which I was like, "Oh, this is really great," and then the other moments is all like, like one of the gang, he's like a burly enforcer, and then um, he gets involved uh, with uh, the scuba diver, and decides that you know the gangs gangster life's not for him, and it's sort of like, did I really need that subplot? Uh, why am I focusing on the flamboyant Yuji, for example, who's just annoying when he's on the screen? And it's it's just like just give me these two characters. That's all I care about. Just scrap everything else and just let me focus on uh, A and Ryota. And yeah, those are those are those are the good bits of the film. And it's just unfortunately padded out with all this other stuff I didn't want. So, well, thank you. At least you've knocked something off my watch list for me. <laughs> I'll put it back. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I do. I do, I do like that whole quirky boys, quirky girls kind of movie normally. But um, I just think that there's a lot of it in in in, in Japanese modern Japanese cinema, and um, it's just not substantiative enough for me. Mm. Okay. So yes, that was uh, the week that was for myself. Um, one movie to check out. One. Maybe not to. Mm-hmm. Um, Love and Love Cults is uh, on available on the Arrow Player as well. So you, if you're feeling curious about it, you can check it out on there as well. But it's, again, it's one of those covers where you've got this, um, you've got this, this group of 
interesting looking characters and on letterbox it's got a really cool cover because it's sort of like um like an arts they've got like the japanese uh, rice and sun flag but it's done in pink and you've got uh, a on the, on the cover with uh, like blonde hair and stuff and it looks really really cool but um i think from what you're describing fair window films have a different cover to it so well, that might be me misremembering, but uh, yeah, I think so. It doesn't matter. Okay. It doesn't matter. No I just, uh, there's a house style, and um, it just, they all fade into, uh, hello, third window from <laughs> the police. They've sent the police around to come and get me. That's not the cover I remember. I know the one you're talking about now. Yes, the sort of with the, with the rising sun behind her with her blonde hair. Maybe I'm misremembering it completely. Okay. But yeah. But anyway, thank you. <laughs> Should we move on then? Let's move on. Okay. Well, on that note, it's time to fire up the projector for tonight's feature presentation as we look at Mighty Picking Man. So Mighty Peking Man, directed by Ho Meng Kui, uh, released in 1977 um, through the Shaw Brothers. Um, this is, again, as we mentioned already, one of their more unique releases and one of two attempts to break into the kaiju field with this and Super Inframan being their uh, two entries. But uh, Ho Meng Kui is a director who is also directed the Oily Maniac for uh, Shaw Brothers and he was... While he's only got 43 uh, films on his credit here, assembles quite a lot of familiar faces from the Shaw Brothers catalogue and would obviously uh, direct quite a few films for Shaw Brothers, including The Cave uh, of Silk and Web, and uh, give us some fun uh, Kung Fu weird with uh, The Fine Guillotine as well. But, uh, Stephen, I mean, are you a f fan of his work at all? When watched, when listening to the audio commentary for this, <laughs> we'll probably have to talk about. I know we're the full list of every film he's ever made. <laughs> yeah, the the audio commentary is certainly something, isn't it, for this one? Yeah, I mean, let's not be too harsh. The fella doing it is clearly knows his stuff, but unfortunately, it does end up being lists and lists of you know. Here's the direction. Here's all the films he did. Here's this actor, and here's twenty minutes and all the films he did. Sometimes whilst interesting stuff's going on on the screen you want him to talk about that um now i've got to be honest with you it's not a director i'm terribly familiar with although a lot of the film names you know things like oily maniac which he does mention about 400 times um <laughs> is something i'm aware of but i've never seen yeah i mean he is one of the most prolific directors um of the shubber shoes i mean he joined in 1955 and ended up directed around 50 films between then and 1980 so he is certainly a like Chang Che, uh, one of those names that is going to appear time and time again as you go through the Shaw Brothers catalogue. But certainly with Mighty Peking Man, it is an interesting little film in the fact that this was their attempt to make a kaiju movie. Um, and they went the route of like the giant ape movie because, you know, King Kong was obviously popular. And prior to this, I want to say that um, we'd already seen. Kong versus uh, Godzilla in in Japan. Yeah, and this is this has been made sort of at the same time as the nineteen seventy six 
Hollywood or Dino De Lentis, De, I can't say his name, you know who I mean. Yeah. Um, the Jessica Lang um, King Kong remake, which I don't remember being very good, but apparently my memory's wrong. <laughs> uh, oh, I think I remember the one you mean. That was the. Yes, that was the. That was made before that one, wasn't it? So, so that's 1976. Okay, so this this film is basically being made to try and get on that um, that money train because that was a big international film, the remake of King Kong with Jessica Lange in it. Um, so they thought we'll just do our own version of it, but I think they're you know the budgets are quite different, and this feel yeah you know we've we've done. Um, Ah, we've done a. Have we done a Kong versus Godzilla? Did we do that one? We've not done Kong versus Godzilla. We've, we've uh, done we, King Kong Returns. We did, didn't we? Yeah, we did King Kong Escapes, which Escapes, is uh, King Kong. Uh, but yes, yeah. you're right. King Kong 1976, um, which was <laughs> an interesting remake to say the least. I mean, that's the one where he claims the twin towers because the Empire State was on vacation that week. Yeah, I mean, I, I I vaguely remember it. Also, I've just remembered um, Shaw Brothers also co-produced um, Meteor as well, <laughs> which is more of the sort of film I remember from this that that time. Um, yeah, so you know, oh oh oh, look, a territory like Hong Kong or China or India doing a their own version of the current cinematic zeitgeist that's not particularly um unusual is it um it's just unusual this is from if this had been a japanese film don't think either of us would have batted an eyelid and it would have been a minor entry but because it's a hong kong movie and like you say there's this and inframan are the only uh, only sort of kaiju monster movies Mm. that really exist in in well in in Shaw Brothers but probably even in Hong Kong movie I can't think of many others before we and then eventually we'll get to Cat Three stuff a few years down the line and you know it'll so there'll be some um, doing their doing yeah. their thing copying like Western horror movies but yeah monster I mean certainly in Japan they latched on to the idea of of giant monsters a lot sooner I mean the earliest example obviously being giant brother statue travel through the country which was at least in 1934 and was unfortunately lost um, due to the bombing of the studio so it's a lost movie uh, the same as uh, the King Kong that appeared in Edo which is 1938 um both of those films are mm-hmm. lost, even though there are people on the internet who try to hodgepodge footage from different movies together to try and say, oh no, mm-hmm. we've got 30 seconds of footage. And it's like, no, it is it is sadly lost. Although you just hope that mm. someone somewhere has got it like in a vault or something. Well, unlikely, isn't it? That's the thing. I mean, I think I read somewhere most movies before 1940 have been lost. Yeah. Across the world, yeah. More movies have been lost than still uh, than still exist. But certainly, when you look at like the history of like the giant monster movies, and when we look at exploitation in particular, I mean, I always like to put that little divider between the ape movies and then the all the other sort of kaiju movies, things like Godzilla and Rodan, Mothra. As I think that giant apes are like a very different beast no pun intended um in terms of like the movies and again within the exploitation movies we've got 
different categories. I mean, we obviously have like the man in the monkey suits, and we can go back as far as like Inagi, which is uh, 1930. And again, that's a movie hodgepodge together from various different movies, and we get to see some interesting monkey suit work there. But really, obviously, the classic being King Kong in 1933. Six months later, we get the 10th Pooch the Pup short um, called King Clunk. Which I sent to Steven today just because I think it's an interesting animation curiosity. And I know, obviously, you're a fan of Cuphead. And it's a very similar animation style. But, oh, my God, the times have changed on some of its values. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm a big fan, yeah, like like you say, of, of, of what Cuphead, the game, is kind of um, emulating those kind of 1920s. Um, like yes, Betty exactly. Betty Boop-type cartoons, things like that. And this, the, and this, and this is very, you know, jazzy soundtrack sort of an animation style that I've always found interesting or there's lots of repeated loops and things like that but my god if there's if there's sexual or racial or ableist things that they're able, that they do that make you cringe I think they made me cringe when I saw I mean they used to be on I used to remember watching them on TV in the early 80s yeah. in the UK so you know this 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 sudden this, I, it made me cringe then. <laughs> I wasn't particularly woke then. So, but yeah, but it's it's still kind of interesting. And that big ape, the big ape, actually, the big ape in that short reminds me a lot more of today. You know, Mighty Peking Man Ape than it does King Kong in terms of its visuals and the like. The thing them I love about King Kong though is I'd say it was released six months after. King Kong, and it's put out by the same studio, and it's basically a shortened version of King Kong. Um, but obviously done with more humorous effects. So we have the scene where he fights the dinosaur, and it's the uh, you see Poots the pup calling it like a boxing fight. And there's a great scene where he like knocks on a coconut, um, and it does the boxing bell sound, and then a monkey appears from inside the coconut and hits him on the head. So actually, and I was surprised when there were sound. You know, he does like you say, he does the he does the boxing commentary, and there's a couple of moments where some sound comes in, some spoken sound, which is like found footage, isn't it? I think that that's played. I, yeah. I wasn't expecting that. I was expecting to be fully silent. That was quite a surprise. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, films started having films around like 1929 mm. with like Mysterious Island being like one of the first uh, films to have like sound effects there. So, and it's, I mean, it's got a time and a place. And I think if you go into it knowing it's very much of its time, um, and certainly, it, especially in terms of its attitude, racist attitudes. But once you get past that opening two minutes, it's, it's a fun little short. There's a lot of inventiveness there to it. And it's um, one of those things that have been forgotten, much like the fact that we had a sequel, The Son of Kong with the White Gorilla, which was released in 1933. Yeah, that came out, that came um, out the following year, didn't it? Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, I wouldn't say that. Um, so that's so. We've got these ones in, again, Mighty Joe Young. That's 1949. Another one, like, a stop-motion masterclass there. But we never talk about Mighty Joe Young, even though it had, like, a questionable remake in the 2000s. So Mighty Joe Young is another film that I remember because it used to get repeated here on, like, BBC Two very often. So that's the one that's sort of, like, set in the Wild West, isn't it? Uh, it's the one where he's got the scene where he's in the circus that, yeah, where that, fighting the lions. It was, it was that and the seven faces of Dr. Lau, whatever it's called, 
the, okay. the other classic stop motion American film of the time that used to, yeah used to be repeated very regularly in on Britain. So I'm but yeah I am. Um, I remember Mighty Joe Young. Is there not a British one as well? Is it Corgo or something? Oh, Conga. Conga. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Conga's interesting because it's got, uh, I want to say Michael Goh, who played um, Alfred the Butler on Batman, mm-hmm. the Adam West series. Yep. Um, he plays this mad scientist who's got this uh, trained ape, which is just basically a guy in a monkey suit. The scenes where this monkey's stalking people, it might as well be like in a... A trench coat, maybe like, you know, like the Humphrey Bogart noir mm. get up with like the hat and stuff. He's all like lurks in the bushes, but at the end, he goes to giant size and climbs the uh, this film's version of Big Ben. <laughs> um, we also had a sex comedy version called Queen Kong as well, which had the uh, guy was in like uh, Confessions or Window Cleaner, Robin, Robin Asquith. Yes, my god, uh, oh, I've just shamed myself by knowing that off the top of my head. <laughs> You're the generation though that was probably like like watching those movies, like hoping to see uh, see some uh, Linda, Bellingham, sort of like, Linda uh, Bellingham's boobs. Yeah, that kind of thing is what what you get out of that. Funnily enough, I did watch one the other day because <laughs> I was thinking, were they any good? It wasn't a Confessions one. It was a it was a competing brand, and it was dreadful. <laughs> it was just yeah. dreadful on 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 both levels. <laughs> Um, and suddenly, I mean, <laughs> there was that was Britain's of offerings into mm. this, and then we've got there's still other like more foreign uh, offerings. There's like Ape from 1976, which has the wonderful uh, opening where we don't get to see them uh, capture the gorilla. They've already captured it. You just see two uh, guys on a boat, and it's all like we've captured the gorilla. It's like oh. So we're not going to see that, but no, that's a Korean. I want it's a a Korean one, but it's uh it's awful. Mm. The only interesting thing in it is the fact the monkey flips the bird to the camera. <laughs> and but I think every nation probably there's there's Italian ones as well, aren't there? That again, they all seem to have the similar names, but the Italians seem to go more towards like doing Jaws ripoffs mm. like uh, Tintoria or Tentacles which is that really boring Killer Octopus one I want to say it's uh, King Kung Fu which has got the the Kung Fu monkey in it oh god uh, Kossi Sio Io King Mong from 1977 oh War of the Gargantuas that's the one I was thinking of but that's a Japanese oh, one that's a, yeah. yeah that's a um, Toho yeah. one that's the one with the two um they're more like a Bonneville snowman type yeah. creatures, um, but yeah, that's a that's a, another one that sort of era of uh, the the shower era ones where they were just sort of like churning them out, and that's where we got things like Mothra and Rodan, and and then they all got brought together for uh, destroy all monsters. But no, there's a lot of weird Italian ones. They did some really interesting uh, sort of like creature features like this one called Wild Beast where PCP gets into the local water supply and it sends all the zoo animals mad um, and it also features a scene where a woman gets her head stood on by an elephant which is something we get to see in tonight's in- film indeed but... <laughs> there's things to talk about tonight's film that just so I think we should obviously get into tonight's tonight's film because yeah, this is this is a really interesting kaiju movie, and it's interesting as well the fact that this would be the as I said one of two entries. And I'm so surprised that 
the Shaw Brothers didn't try to do more with it because this is actually a very enjoyable entry and it sort of hints at what they could have obviously done because I feel that there's elements of this film which give like the Toho output a run for its money and certainly things like Gamera uh, even like the North Koreans entry into the genre with Pulgasaro um, I think it sort of rivals that sort of level I mean yeah alright so it's it doesn't look Hollywood quality right but it, the effects, right, are pretty good. <laughs> the, the I mean, they sewed a man into a monkey yeah, costume. Yeah, the, the back projection <laughs> stuff doesn't work so well. That always looks like it's being, it literally being projected behind the scene it's in. But there's some animatronics, there's some model making. They they literally go to India for bits of this, and they actually film instead of putting some cocoa powder on some extras in Causeway Bay. They actually go to India. And they do, and then they do some quite clever stuff. Some of it's obviously done, filmed in Hong Kong. Um, the, <laughs> yeah, there is some still black to back. Yeah, there's, the, there's a whole tribe of them at the beginning. Yeah, but the but the whole set, a good part of it. There are 300 Indians actually in it. So I'm um, I'm going to give it some credit. <laughs> it's not quite as bad as Mothra, <laughs> some of the others. But um, and you know. You watch these films with a certain expectation and don't worry about the details too much anyway, don't you? Um, and I thought it was really enjoyable. I know, I understand why they've put it on that box set. Because it feels like an outlier. But actually, it's a darn good film, I think. Yeah, I mean, Mighty Peking Manor was a film that was first introduced cause through uh, Tarantino's role in Thunder Pictures. His uh, short-lived uh, DVD label, which uh, gave us Chunking Express, he gave us Switchblade Sisters, and he unfortunately never did a intro or outro that he did for this on like Chunking Express and Switchblade Sisters. But there's a number of films that he put on out on that la- label, including Detroit uh, Three Thousand. Um, and this was uh, one of them, and I would love to know why he loves it so much. And I mean, he has just recently launched a podcast with Roger Avery uh, the Video Archives podcast and I'm hoping that they have a copy of Mighty Peking Man in there because it'd be really interesting to know why he uh, what his interest in this movie was because the whole thing with Rolling Thunder Pictures it was just basically him having a label to bring across um, and do releases of films that he was interested in but it, sadly it never really lasted which is a real frustration and now he's gone back into his sort of film criticism mode that we might see some more of these films uh, getting getting sort of released but no Mighty Peking Man is um, sees, sees this uh, guy called Luke Tem um, basically hearing this legend uh, that in the Himalayan mountains there's this giant gorilla called Mighty Peking Man and we see him at the start as he's uh, there's this huge earthquake and he's released in the earth and decides that the first thing he's going to do is to go and trash this video of um, brown-faced Japanese actors um, who, despite them living up in the mountains, still have thought to themselves, we need to build ourselves catapults and spears and all sorts of uh, weapons in case we have to deal with a giant monkey coming out the earth. Um, and he basically just trashes the this village. At the same time, um, Lou is uh, putting together this party and he's uh, hires 
Danny Lee's character Johnny, who's uh, recently broken up with his girlfriend and is solving his problems through the bottom of a bottle. Hang on, hang so, on, hang on. I don't think you've quite said split up with his girlfriend hasn't quite defined the problem. He caught his brother in bed with her. <laughs> and and so that's driven a that's driven something between him and his brother and the girlfriend and it doesn't show the girlfriend in very good light because the brother's insisting he had nothing he didn't had no idea so yeah he's he's drowning his sorrows in a bar because his girlfriend's sleeping with his brother that's uh yeah that's um that's one up on indiana jones isn't it (laughs) sorry i interrupted that's okay so they head over to India, and it's mere minutes before they're being attacked by the local wildlife. As um, this film really follows the Shaw Brothers method of we've got to have an action beat every 10 15 minutes in this film. So, of course, in India, what do we have? Uh, if we can't obviously do some kung fu stuff, we'll just have pack of rampaging elephants. Yeah, so the group are attacked first off by a group of elephants, which are a back projection. And they clearly didn't check the stock footage too closely because there's a bunch of baby elephants in this. So you have actors shooting at baby elephants and <laughs> less, more disposable actors being stood on by elephants or having buildings knocked the, on the, them. The, 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 the most common way to die in this film is to be stood on by some animal, <laughs> whether it's whether it's uh, the, the giant gorilla man or an elephant or anything, yeah. But that's not the best bit. Yeah. Come on, hurry up, get to the best bit of the movie. <laughs> okay, so so of course they go on from here and then they get attacked by a tiger and we get to see a, one of the extras wrestling with an actual live tiger, which is really kind of cool to see. When we um, when we both watched RRR fairly recently with with the CGI tiger getting punched in the face and, and there's been some other, I think Troy Hark had uh, a tiger-based movie fairly recently and but this I, I couldn't believe it i thought surely they're going to be wrestling some kind of cuddly toy but no it's like raw yeah it's like they've used real tiger <laughs> all, <laughs> this. All, th- there's another animal later on that we'll get to another classic bit of the movie but yeah a- another animal which doesn't actually live in india by the way but tigers do we well, I'll, I'll give them elephants and tigers but, okay yeah i mean god knows how drugged up it was because I've been to Marwell Zoo. I don't know, Zoo. that guy seemed to be, like, really giving, going at yeah. it when he's, like, wrestling this tiger. Because, I mean, I, well, we've probably both been to Marwell Zoo. The Siberian fucking tigers, which I know are a bigger breed, but they come up to the fucking plexiglass and scare the shit out of me. I wouldn't fucking wrestle that. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy seems to be biting it at one mm. point uh, before this tiger bites the leg <laughs> off the guy and... <laughs> One of the greatest <laughs> moments of the film. By <coughs> use of a jump cut, yeah. It's like, it's like, and it's like this, um, noise, <laughs> his leg comes off. Which, of course, I'm watching this, and then if you're, if you're a Monty Python fan, it's like, oh, a tiger walked off from his leg. Tis but a scratch. And in the ensuing panic, uh, one of our one of our group and uh, two of the guys run off into quicksand which of course envelops them super quick because that's what quicksand does in movies quick quicksand i i appreciate quick quicksand exists in the real world but yeah it is this wonderful 
thing that only really happens in the movies, isn't it? Because <laughs> it's not really quicksand, is it? It's like a fetid, a fetid pond that he drowns in. <laughs> I'm, um, oh, I'm laughing at it, but it is still very entertaining. Um, this yeah. is, I mean, this is, may sound like this is like curious, but this is actually you know thrilling adventure time stuff. Um, this isn't as hokey as it may sound, so bear with us. And while climbing up a cliff, they manage to lose more, which means we get a wonderful dummy fall. At this point, as well, that they decide, well, we're just going to abandon Jimmy and just leave him in the middle of the Himalayas. So he's uh, left on his own, and at which point he encounters a mighty Peking man and his. Uh, how do you want to describe her? Um, Tarzan S. Um. Okay, that's one way I was going. That's what, one way, but... what we have is is an extraordinarily attractive blonde woman called Evelyn Crabb. Yeah, she's who's who's a Swiss actress. She didn't. She hasn't. She didn't do a lot. Sad that she died quite young. Or, or relatively young, but she didn't do a lot of movies. But she is stunningly attractive, and really, you know, we um, we watch a lot of films where there are white people in Hong Kong movies, and there are a few in this later on that clearly are just people who've been picked up off the street <laughs> and don't really know how to act or talk. And to be fair. She doesn't get a lot of lines, and mysteriously, she is able to speak some Mandarin. <laughs> but let's not worry about that. I think the idea is she can't talk at all. Um, she's game. She emotes well. I, mean, I, I, I bought into it, but she has the tiniest fur bikini known to man that I am sure is designed to fall off her at every circumstance. <laughs> But uh, yeah, she's yeah, she's basically. Um, what's that? What's her backstory that we get told in a in a montage? Well, she was in a plane yeah. that uh, that crashed with her with her parents, and uh, she survived as a child, and she was raised by uh, the Peking man called Utam. Yeah, we should call him Utam because he's neither a man nor from Peking. <laughs> so let's let's call him by his real name. <laughs> so yeah, Utam has uh, has his bond bond with her. So. He um, he's been looking after, her and she can swing for the trees through Tarzan. She can put jungle cats on her back and spin them around, which I attempted to do with a cat earlier, and it, yeah. it didn't go well. So so yeah, um, so she's got a best friend who's a leopard. Leopards don't live in India; they're an African creature. However, again, while fucking nuts is this, it must have been drugged out of its skin because yeah, she's she's got it. She's wearing it like a like a stole or something and spinning around <laughs> and he doesn't seem to care and you see Danny Lee is approaching it you could just see the trepidation like when he's stroking it on the head and stuff <laughs> and you think, the people just you wouldn't get away with it today would you <laughs> no well, they definitely CGI it but yes unsurprisingly because they're the only two humans on the mountains they embark on this tombless of love affair where they're going out and rollicking in oh, the stream hang, hang and... on again you're missing the best bits she gets oh, God. she gets bitten by a snake which also has a wrestling match with the leopard and they get stood on by an elephant and yeah right <laughs> and it bites her in the upper thigh area which is going to require someone to suck the poison out and stuff isn't it so it's all kind of very yeah, it's 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 quite graphic for the type of movie this is. It's not porn or anything, but there's a there's a whole 
subtext going on here that I really wasn't expecting. It's a lot more wink, wink, nudge, nudgy. I think you mentioned the bit where they're having sex behind some strategically placed apples. Oh yeah, there's there is a there is a, a sex scene where, where Utam seems to be <laughs> <Utam> the... <laughs> latching on. It's like the sheer logistics, man. It's never going to work between you and Samantha. But, but um, isn't that the same in all these movies, like, like where women are loved like Kong and Fay Ray and the, those movies where women fall in love with chimpanzees and stuff like that. It's like. No, this is never going to work. What the hell is going on? But Utam, Utam uh, doesn't seem to mind Danny Lee. He seems to just wants to watch. He's like the cuckold here. <laughs> well, no, he goes on a bit. But he, this is the thing. He he sees them uh, having having sex, and the whole movie you're just there doing your little pause pause uh, fast forward thing to see, trying to see like a bit of boob or something because you've all watched walkabout and or logan's run and you think oh this is gonna be exactly the same but it's you'd be disappointed as the commentary was and so, yeah they have this sex scene with this this mysteriously uh strategic pyramid of apples that's been placed to uh cover up anything and utan sort of lecture on and he goes on a bit of a a jealous rant and she has to go and calm him down and uh, his expression while he's watching is like when you know um, when you watch the Star Wars Holiday Special and you've got the Grandpa Wookiee there watching porn in the lounge. <laughs> yes, it's a similar expression to what he has on his face here. because oh. um, this is kind of a, an interesting looking costume because it's it's uh, cheap in the sort of body, but they seem to put a lot of effort into the face. Mm. I got a fa- fun fact for you, which you might know. His body. It's real human hair, and three hundred people went to Shaw Brothers Studios to offer up their hair for this outfit. <laughs> so that's that's it's basically a wig made of three hundred people's hair. <laughs> but but yeah, and um and it switches sometimes, doesn't it? So sometimes it's like a mask, and you can see his eyes, and sometimes it's like a, a model head, and it all looks like a Funko Pop with glassy eyes, but. It does. It looks like they they glued some poor guy inside the suit, <laughs> <laughs> which, knowing how these movies are made, would not surprise me. Especially when we like look at the Toho movies and when they were recycling suits for like using Ultraman and stuff, and they would just spray paint it, the suits with the actors still inside, or that they would strap explosives to them. I mean, and this is um, this is um, Kieto Murase, who I mean, you'll know better than I, but. He's a he's a proper Japanese, you know. He's a, he's a Japanese kaiju actor um, who's worked on Mothra and King Kong versus Godzilla. So he's a it's not just a rando again that they've picked up. I think he's in the H Man. Yep, which is I can't remember if we've talked about H Man or if I've just reviewed it. So he's um, you know, he's 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 they they've gone and got some decent people for this film. But yeah, his his filmography. Does them all, mate. Mothra, Godzilla, Digimon Strikes Again. I mean, he's mostly the maker of models rather than being the actor inside it. Gamera, the lot. I have to say, the the model work in this film is absolutely phenomenal. I think it. It's I think really it really is top tier. I think it varies. I think that first sequence, you know, in the in the Himalayan village, looks dreadful. Yeah. But later on, it gets okay. a lot better. I mean, there's a lot of the jungle sort of footage uh, that, that I thought was really good, yeah. and certainly where they've held miniatures in front of the camera um, to sort of create this false sense of location. Mm. 
I think there's a lot of interest in stuff there, and certainly when we get back into Hong Kong, there's a lot of interest in sequences there, including a phenomenal exploding helicopter, which I'm sure we'll, we're going to stupid detail on his podcast because he's covered this one with uh, Nick Rehack. Mm. Yes. Um, so, as always, the well, in this, not as always, that's not fair. I think the model work is pretty good, except when it does sometimes look like Trumpton. Mostly when they've got cars okay. involved, it starts looking like Trumpton. But on the whole, again, you, you, you give it a pass because of the budget and when it was made and, and the style of movie. And it, none of it bothered me at all. It's you know it's better than Thunderbirds, isn't it? Oh, don't say that. <laughs> That's blasphemy to insult Anderson's work. Even though Anderson hates his work, <laughs> he just wanted to direct movies, but he couldn't direct movies, mm. so he just ended up creating like our childhood in miniature. Mm. Um, so much good stuff Jerry Anderson did, and he hates it all. But um. Certainly, when you watch this movie, you do appreciate Holder's camera work than when you look at Godzilla and Mothra. Because while they do a lot of low angle shots, they put the camera right underneath Utan. Mm. So there are moments where it looks like Utan is teabagging the camera. <laughs> um, which is great. It's like, yes, we've got the sense of scale, but back it up just a couple of inches there. <laughs> so we're not just like seeing Utan's crotch and yeah. <laughs> stomping on the camera. Um, he does, but as you said already, there's a lot of people get stood on. Yeah, in this movie, um, I think it, it's it's weird. It doesn't go as hard as like the Gamera movies do, but it certainly shows lost uh, human life that we don't really get in the Godzilla movies, especially in the Shara River, where everyone's sort of running to monster bunkers. Mm. Oh, I mean, yeah, and you know, Hong Kong is Hong Kong island is a small place yeah he's there's no way he's not going to have a huge amount of collateral damage they're not used to it are they like they are in in japan where monsters you know they made this whole infrastructure set up to survive monsters. although in hong kong they do have hurricane shelters and things like that which they could have used but yeah they're not used to it if he ever came back they would they would have been prepared but i i think that's really i think that's one of the most interesting bits about the film is when he actually when they when they you know they take him to hong kong oh god i've forgotten about the trip on the boat <laughs> well this is the thing it's all like he's living this happy little life out in the jungle with uh, samantha and then he's sort of like i want to take utam to hong kong and it's like why do we want to take the monkey to hong kong what what do you possibly have to gain? It's sort of like you were miserable in Hong Kong because your girlfriend ran off with your brother, and now you want to take this monkey back to Hong Kong for what sort of cause? I mean, the only sort of like inspiration he had before was the fact they were like, Oh, if you do this, then you can have any woman in the world, <laughs> and it's sort of like you've got this hot Tarzan chick. Why do you uh, why do you do this? But no, he convinces her, and they apparently just walk straight into India. Which is a less uh, eventful trip than it was getting there. Yep. Uh, even though they stole a mini right, and then his liaison in um, in India, who's been spending all his time hanging out poolside with uh, various Indian model types. There is there is a lot of interracial um, relationships in this movie. It's very progressive in that regard. <laughs> I love the fact that when he comes out of the pool, he's, he's like, um, he goes over and he's like, "Yes, this is my rope." And I wonder, was it like just 
some language barrier there when they were just improv in that scene. Yeah, I have no idea. But yeah, this is Lu Tien, isn't it? Who is who's the guy who? Yeah, I don't know why he's just been hanging around at a hotel. He's been there saying he's openly admitting that they abandoned Johnny in the jungle. And and I think I. I don't know if I'm remembering this wrong, but hasn't Danny been gone for 18 months? I'm not sure how long I'm he's sure, been gone I'm for. Sure. I know that they claim that they... Because he comes back and he's like, oh yeah, we searched the whole jungle and Utam doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, They somehow managed to gloss over the fact that they just dumped Johnny in, yeah, the, and in then the jungle just, for no and reason. And then just jollied it up at a hotel for... I, I'm sure something says it's been 18 months they've been away. So Johnny's Johnny's relationship with Samantha is... Is isn't just an overnight fling. I think they it's probably taken quite a lot for them to leave. So, yeah, I don't know what they've been doing, just hanging there. But yeah, and then they they chain him up on a boat. Oh wait, yeah. this is the thing. It's like it takes me a week to organise the boat. Where does he keep him for a week? I know. What does he eat? Just, just there are a lot of questions that just don't get answered. I suppose. Well, every text is. Oh well, yeah, but are gorillas. I assume gorillas are. Chirits. <laughs> There's a deep dive for for, for people our age. <laughs> in, in the UK, they had a sweet brand uh, called Chirits, who were like a Mawam or a, like a Chewy Jolly Rancher, and their, the adverts basically involved uh, Godzilla and King Kong being quelled only by Chirits. They were good adverts. You've just reminded me of them. They still make Chirits. Chirits still exist. I'll find it. We'll see if we can find it. We'll put it yeah. up on the uh, the socials so you can all enjoy that one. But somehow they've uh, kept him occupied for a week and uh, they take him back on the boat. And at this point, Johnny is uh, so concerned about Utam's like, health and well-being that he's basically trying to get Samantha into this uh, leather animal print number. Well, I'll tell you what, right? So I understand. Look, love, you can't really wear your little fur bikini and calling it a bikini is giving it far too much credit there's not enough of it to be a bikini <laughs> i tell you what I do what I'd like to do is dress you up as a prostitute <laughs> which, which thankfully Samantha does rejects quite full on but yeah I'm not really I don't know where he found this out because you know if he bought it in India that's a very conservative little sea country right you won't find prostitute outfits in the streets of Calcutta. So has he just been carrying this around? Is this something he... Memory of his girlfriend or something. But yeah, she, she wants nothing to do with it. She throws it out the window. But that that, that was the important thing, Johnny. <laughs> Sorry, I'm gonna, there's going to be a lot of this <laughs> digressing. Um... That's all right, but yeah, they end up in Hong Kong, and what follows is basically King Kong fodder with Kong with I say Kong then. Utam is put on show where they have this real questionable show where they basically show him pulling uh, dump trucks again, more wonderful model work there, uh, while evil bastards poke him with a stick. <laughs> Yes, which is obviously we, what we have a group of like just people just there poking with sticks, and it's like that's going to be nothing other than just to exhibit what say this little sod you are. Mm. And and Danny, yeah, Danny re- reconnects with his brother because his brother's a yeah, his brother is like the like a producer of films or TV or something, isn't he? Who who? That's right. He he has some shitty show on TV. <laughs> 
that's like a talent show or something. That's dreadful. But yeah, the the show. I wouldn't. I mean, not loads of everyone in Hong Kong's turned up to the show. Meanwhile, Lu Tien, who we knew as a dick, decides to fucking rape Samantha. Oh yeah, he turns to do that, and that was like that just comes out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, and yes, Utam ends up going on a rampage. Uh, Samantha goes off running in the city, and the British army is brought in to deal with uh, Utam because you know you're welcome. <laughs> we are. It is a British colony at the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you got a big monster. You calling the British army with with very stereotypical English speaking chaps who are sort of like, oh yes, we'll deal with that. And uh, we'll find we'll find your girl mm. in a fair bikini. She should be very easy to spot. <laughs> well, yeah, she would have been. Send in the helicopters and bomb him to death. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we're actually very good at um, tackling giant monster threats. It seems because when you look at where like things are being shot at, we managed to hit our giant monkey. Unlike every Toho production, where it's like fire five billion rockets to the thing and just blow up everything around mm. it. Yeah, we're much better than the Japanese at, at dealing with this. This is very true. We, we get yeah, this, we get the job done. This is, this, this is why it, I'm trying to think. In destroy all monsters, does one of the monsters get teleported to England? I don't think it does. No, um, Rodan goes to Russia. Yeah. Um, New York gets Godzilla. Yeah. Uh, Mothra gets France. Yeah, oh yeah. Because uh, he's in the lava stage. Um, and uh, Manda turns up in Hong Kong. Oh, they should be in the East Strip by now. And <laughs> um, I mean, Manda's a low rent yeah. monster as well. But you notice they don't send one to England or Great Britain because they know. It would be dealt with. <laughs> no, but I will say I wasn't expecting. I, I'll come. We, we can do spoilers for a movie that's older than our combined ages. It's not that old, but I wasn't. I was surprised that one of our characters didn't make it to the end. Yeah, I mean, it has a very sort of downbeat mm. ending, and I think it's mainly because it's trying to. It's trying to recapture what King Kong gave us, where we feel sad for this this magnificent creature, and because we as a society we can't have nice things, we have to constantly destroy nice things. And the basic this the whole ending, unsurprisingly, is trying to recreate King Kong. Mm. And the tallest building in Hong Kong, in this case, would be the Jardine House, uh, which he climbs out, and he's uh, they're swatting at helicopters because I guess there's no biplanes in hong kong <laughs> well it's a bit like a bit later in the in 50 years later in it but yeah um but yeah we get some really interesting destruction sequences here we get so we get a really awesome chopper fireball which um is worth checking out as well um we also get to see the fuel company that is sponsoring the uh the film yep with some blatant advertising <laughs> yeah, very blatant <laughs> Um, and uh, yeah, basically the uh, British army managed to uh, blow him up as we get to see uh, him set on fire and he falls off the building into the post office building. Um, yeah, I mean, Uta- Utam dying, I, was, I wasn't, I was you know, I expected that. What, what, what's, what's he going to do? It's a, gonna, it is a little bit sad. Yeah. I mean, they get some emotion in the face of yeah. the creature, so it is a little bit sad and when you see I him think make his last that stand. That is one of the differences between a lot of kaiju movies and this, is that Utam does have 
other emotive face. You know, you talked about the eyes and stuff like that. You can, it, you know, sometimes like, and, and there is a humanity to him. But I was really surprised about Samantha. She she bites the bullet, unless I don't. It's very open whether she is or she isn't because. Because if you say carrying at the end and he's looking out over the Bay of mm. Hong Kong, um, I love the fact that Johnny, who gets shot in the leg, manages to leap over a guardrail <laughs> and land on his leg. <laughs> Doesn't wince at all. Yeah. Um, although I did think he, at one moment he was going to get blown up, but he wakes up just in time. Um, mm. But I, uh, the British Army, it has to be said, they're just all about the job, aren't they? He just like says he says no we won't we won't shoot the monkey and then as soon as he's outside he's like shoot the monkey <laughs> shoot the monkey so it's like, and no one like questions it's all like but you gave me your word sir it's sort of like yes sir and like yeah. squadrons of helicopters <laughs> going up and and shooting this uh shooting I, I, I'm sorry it's none of your business we we got a job to do but yes so even in craft right I re- I read that she's somewhere that that she said they filmed. A different ending for the Indian market because obviously this was that you felt make a film in India, you've got an audience of a billion people extra, which must have been something. And she said they filmed an ending for the Indian market that where uh, Samantha lives quite clearly lives, yeah. But I haven't been able to find like any alternate version or anything anywhere. And also, the fella doing the commentary starts talking about their. He starts saying, oh, apparently there's alternate versions for different markets, but every version he's seen is exactly the same. So I think there's a big myth around this. You know, obviously, the bit he's talking about is there's bits where you see more of Evelyn Craft's breasts, because that's what alternate versions are, aren't they? But yes, I was interested that there was a different ending, but I have found nothing to say this. So this is a film obviously shrouded in um, a lot of myth as well. But so many of these films are aren't they so many alternate versions and cut down edits for international markets but very entertaining yes definitely was uh this is i've seen this one a couple of times um before but it's still just as entertaining as it was the first time i watched it so um yeah it's i would give it a big recommend to myself so. yeah that's absolutely same i mean this is obviously it's the first time i saw it and i, I i've heard of it before and obviously, like, again, the poster's kind of interesting because you don't see many Chinese-language films with blonde Nordic types on the front cover. <laughs> just don't. You just don't. No. Um, you also don't get to see many movies where they set a man in a monkey suit on fire. No. All, all movies where women wear leopard, live leopards as stoles or where tigers bite people's legs off or they shoot at baby elephants and... There's there's a lot in here to enjoy. There's a lot of it, you know, as always with these kind of movies. It's easy for us, well, it's easy for me to be mean to it and and pick it apart. But it's really rather charming, and it's it, it doesn't get boring. Even with the sort of the whole romantic subplot seems to take an awful long time. It, it's um, it's charming. And Danny Lee, Danny Lee, of course, we haven't really spoken about him, but he's like one of those big stars of Hong Kong that's been in hundreds of movies, yet kind of wasn't part of the classic era of Shaw Brothers, nor is he... I mean, he's made films now, hasn't he? Obviously, he's a director as well, but it just feels like there's a whole era of Hong Kong cinema, which he is the main man, but 
he's not one of the original Shaw Brother players, and he's not Jackie Chan, and he's not Jet Li, and he, you know what I mean. But he, but he's in a million well, movies. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> he's in some really great movies as well. I mean, he's in The Killer, he's in City on Fire, yep. he's in Inferman, Untold Story. Yes, he is. Yes. Um, yeah, and and so he's like this really popular, you know, really well-known face, but he's not got that international stardom. You know, he's not one of the five Venoms, but he's not Jackie Chan. He just falls in the middle of of their time. Well, this is the this is the thing. I mean, because obviously, the Venom mob were like the the golden boys of uh, of the Shaw Brothers, and then obviously you had the lucky stars over at Golden Harvest, and outside that you had people. You had with Golden Harvest, they were a little more mixed because you had a lot more sort of standout out stars over there because you had people like Charlie Fat and you had Bruce Lee, um, and then you obviously had Jackie Chan and and the Lucky Stars uh, mob, which is obviously Samo and. And Co. Uh, so he just never fell into like one of those those groups. who sort of really got pushed. And as you said, I mean, he's still still making uh, movies now. I mean, he's got 138 credits on his his IMDb, and he was in Triad Wars um, as most recently as 2008. He's in one or two of the Violent and Young and Dangerous. He's in Shanghai 13. This and 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 he. He was a big noise in the, you know, in that Cat Three thing where we talked about in some in um in our Anthony Wong uh, Anthony Wong session. But you know he he directed and produced Doctor Lamb. He produced Untold Story. You know he's he's had a fascinating career and is still going. And uh, but I have to say I wouldn't be able to pick him out of a lineup, which is really sad. I just say he doesn't look too different. No, looking he, at his uh, his uh, letterbox photo here, he he's uh, aged well. He has, he has. But yeah, he's a, he's a he's a big he's a big deal, and we kind of skipped over him because uh, you know certainly in the eighties, I would sort of seventies mid seventies to mid eighties, he probably was the main the main Hong Kong star of a lot of movies, and and it's really interesting that he you know he has gone on and become. Producer, director, all those kind of things, and still, still, probably still acting. He doesn't seem to have any records though, <laughs> LPs. So maybe that, maybe <laughs> that's why. Um. So yeah, I would say that uh, that's a big recommend from us both. Then mm, for, for sure, yeah, I'm really, really pleased. Um, really pleased with that. If you. If you haven't checked it already, you can obviously check it on Arrow Player, where it's part of the Shaw Scope Volume 1. And it is also available on its own, where you can get it on YouTube and iTunes, basically anywhere you can find the uh, Celestial Picture releases. So it's very easy to get hold of and to check out. Um, and it's also as part of a the Rolling Thunder Pictures free pack, which, uh, as I said already, includes Switchblade Sisters and Detroit 3000 as well. So you can get it that way as well. What's next? What are you bringing to the party for the next episode? So going to the our next episode, um, I'm going with something. Um, I thought I haven't seen but it seems to be very popular with our uh, our group over on the uh, Facebook page uh, if you haven't uh, t- followed us already um, go follow us now on Facebook, Twitter Instagram, come say hi to us there okay so on the next one we're actually going to be looking at another title that is part of the Criterion Collection and that is Face of Another from 1966 right you'll be glad to know 
I've never heard of this, but I saw what you posted on the Facebook the other day, and it in, oh yeah, it was it this, this afternoon, and it intrigued me. That's good. It's got. I've got an so, eyes without a face vibe. Hopefully, yes, it does, doesn't it? I, I, I hope um, it doesn't disappoint. Well, we got several people giving it the thumbs up, including Rashmi and Marcus and Andrea. So, you know, people were. I put out there: Is anyone else a fan of it? Well, is there any face of another fans out there? And then people rushed to express their love for this movie. So I was like, done. That was an easy pick. I had a couple of things in mind of like directions we could have gone, but I think Face of Another is going to be uh, Face of Another is what we're going to be covering, and it's a chance for us to cross enough with the Criterion list off. And a film I haven't seen, which is pretty cool. So. Excellent. Just waiting for that truck to go past. Yeah, I don't know what's going on out there. I think I think the zombies have arrived, and the <laughs> the army are off to. Uh, Aldermaston. Anyway, there we go. Right, cool. So that brings us into tonight's episode. Thank you as always for listening. You can uh, obviously follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Come say hi to us there. And if you haven't done already, please do hit the like and subscribe button wherever you happen to be listening to us. Leave us a review as it all helps raise the profile of the show. And you can check out our blog, which is asiancinemafilmclub.wordpress.com, which has got our complete archive episodes as well as other fun things such as our film vault, the anime vault, the dark side of Asian cinema, as well as our seasons of um, Takashi Miike and Anthony Wong. And and if that wasn't enough, we also have our chapter by chapter breakdown of Battle Royale, which you can find on its own feed as well as this feed under Battle Royale Podcast. So plenty to keep you busy there. Um, but uh, until next time, thank you for listening. And thank you to my co Stephen. And we'll be back next time to talk about Face of Another. But until then, good night. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com.